Welcome to the Broad Story Project. In these times of COVID-19, the world is a crazy jungle of contradictions. One place Broad's instinctively turned to for solace is our memories, stories from our pasts that have shaped us and remain part of us, defining what we value and what gives us joy. Suez Jacobson leads this project. She is a writer, the executive producer of the film Wild Hope, and serves on the Broad's board of directors. In this episode, Suez talks with longtime member Betsy Kaplan. Betsy has been with Broad since the organization began. She's an old friend of Frandy Johnson, one of our founders. Aside from climbing all of Colorado's 14ers, Betsy is a molecular biologist. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today, Betsy will share a harrowing story. I'm Betsy Kaplan, and I was born and brought up on a farm in New Jersey, of all places. I went to Cushing Academy, a prep school, and then I went to Duke University in North Carolina and uh, did my last education at Syracuse because I wanted to take some fine art courses. Then at Syracuse, I met my wonderful husband, Jerry, and uh, we got married about three months after we met. And he had Army service down at Fort Benning, Georgia. And after he was in the Judge Advocate Corps, and after his service, we decided to come out to Colorado and live here. And he'd set up his practice, which is uh, a little firm, Kaplan and Ernest. And soon after we got to Boulder, Colorado, we joined the Colorado Mountain Club and started hiking and climbing with them. I guess my story is about one of our radical, dangerous climbs that taught me some lessons in fortitude and uh, confidence. I was around 53 years old, and uh, we had done 33 14ers, and uh, somebody said, well, if you're going to do the hard ones, you might as well start with Crestone Peak. So we went down to the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in southern Colorado with some friends, and uh, we camped overnight, and the next morning got up and started climbing around 6 in the morning. Everything was fine. We uh, tramped across what's called the Bears Playground. It's um, a high point of about 13,000 feet, and then turned left after an hour or so and looked up at Crestone Peak, and boy, it was dominant. It looks like a diamond that somebody stuck upside down into the earth. Very, very steep, very sharp edges. And uh, I sort of swallowed hard and followed the leader, who was Alan Delamere. And uh, we went across a couple of ravines. And then I looked up and I saw this wall with sort of an upside down triangular cut in it. And Alan said, that's where we're going. And I thought, maybe not me, (laughs) but being pretty obedient, I followed him and went through the cut. And on the other side, we saw the infamous red couloir. This is what everybody talks about because it's dark and it's steep. And the uh, stones, when they're wet or snowy, are very slippery. It's a pretty dangerous place. So we started up the red couloir. I was... um, doing it with handholds and footholds. We went up sort of like monkeys crawling. (laughs) And finally, 
We came out into the sunlight on the saddle and went to the right and found the top of Crestone Peak. And the peak is 14,295 feet. And I felt so good to have finally climbed Crestone, which is in everybody's books is a, a real hard one. We all sat down kind of in a circle on a very small summit and had a good long drink of water. And then we realized it was only 10 o'clock. <laughs> we had made very good time. But the day wasn't over yet. The group decided to go on. So I think it was my mistake to suggest, why don't we do Kit Carson today, too, because it's so early. Because across the valley between Crestone and Kit Carson, it looked like, you know, all you had to do was go down across the valley and start up Kit Carson. Now, Alan thought this might be a good idea because we could get the two done on a day that looked like if it had good weather all day, usually you have to get off the summit around noon because of thunderstorms. So we started down this red cool bar, and it was much worse going down than coming up because you couldn't see where you were going. And I was very afraid of slipping, and I knew that not too far from where we were climbing was a drop-off with a waterfall that went all the way down, as far as I could tell, to the valley. So it was scary. And uh, we kind of retraced our route towards the Bears Playground, but went down into the valley instead. And we got into the valley, oh, I would say about 1.30 or so. We had to rest because, you know, it's kind of exhausting to do this. We started up the second 14er at about 2 p.m. And Kit Carson's not at all dangerous like Crestone, but it's 14,165 feet, so it's formidable. And uh, pretty soon, we were doing pretty well climbing up Kit Carson, and we passed a party of CMCers, Colorado Mountain Club members, who were coming down, and a girl said, you already did Crestone, and you're going to do Kit Carson? You're animals, <laughs> which was funny. So about 5 o'clock... We reached the summit of Kit Carson, and of course, Alan, who had climbed these mountains before, knew that was dangerously late. The shortness of the remaining daylight increased the challenge ahead. So we headed down, and when we got to the Bears Playground again, we started up, and it was still a a good day, but the sun went down at (laughs) 8. And there was only a fingernail moon, and it set in the west. And as it became darker, Alan said, do you all have headlights? And we said yes and put them on. And then we could see out over the San Luis Valley. It was just beautiful, all dark except one or two squares of light. By 9 p.m., it was completely dark. And sure enough, our flashlights ran out of batteries, which was a good lesson for all of us, and we had no extra batteries. So we trudged across the highland in the pitch dark. It was a beautiful night. The stars were sparkling. You could just make out all the constellations overhead, but we could not see where we were going. Then the wind picked up, and we stopped, 
and took out all our extra clothing. I put on a sweater, a jacket, a rain jacket, rain pants, and a wool hat and gloves, and uh, was still sort of chilly. Now, we went up and down on the bear's playground. Occasionally, behind a rock, we'd find shelter from the wind. It snuggled together, warm up, drink a little water, eat a candy bar. But uh, around midnight, we had to just go by starlight. We really couldn't see at all. And I remember coming to a big boulder, and I thought, how am I going to get around this? And I sort of hugged the rock and found footing on a ledge and got around it. That was very frightening. Pretty soon, we could no longer see the San Luis Valley, but we could see clusters of light to the east in the wet valley. And then we stopped to rest once more. This was early in the morning, maybe two in the morning. And Alan went on to find a path because there is a trail that goes between Humboldt Peak and Crestone. And uh, we waited, kind of shivering and scared. (laughs) Finally, he came back. He said, get up. I found the path down. Oh, hooray. (laughs) What a change in attitude I had. And we followed as much as we could on the scanty path. Sometimes we'd see a cairn, and at one point, I thought I'd take a shortcut. I was sort of sliding along on my bottom because I was so tired, and I just felt that there was a void below me. And sure enough, I was on the edge of a cliff just about to go over. So that was frightening, too. I got up and joined the others, and it wasn't until 4 a.m. that we reached the Colony Lakes where we had set up our tent. What a relief. (laughs) Were there any lessons they learned from this experience? What did I learn from all this? I learned that when you're very tired, and after two 14ers and traveling through the night, I was exhausted. I was bumping down the path on my bottom, (laughs) not even hiking, and I was cold. And, uh, of course, I, I had a sense that Maybe we should just stay where we are and let somebody rescue us in the morning. But Alan, who belongs to Rocky Mountain Rescue, said, no, we'll go down. We don't want them to bother down there. There was another group of Colorado Mountain Club people in their tent. We don't want them to phone for the Rocky Mountain Rescue. And uh, I thought, okay, now you've conquered the worst. (laughs) And uh, this led me to look upon finishing the 14ers. We had some bad ones to do, difficult ones, I should say. One is El Diente, which we climbed with Dick Walker from Durango. You may know him. That, too, had its moments of terror. But at least this gave me a lot of confidence and also a reminder not to be so cocky, because I think I was the one who said, oh, Kit Carson, it's right over there. Let's do that one, too not thinking it through that we'd be benighted on the way home, and that was not good. And then we went on and uh, finished all the 14ers, I guess, in the 1990s. Those are fantastic stories. Um, what, what do you think motivated you to do all the 14ers? I guess it was pressure um, from friends. Uh, quite a, I went out with a hiking group, 
We went out every Wednesday, and a few of them had done several 14ers, and one had done them all. And that's why I thought, you know how it is when you are competitive. (laughs) I thought if she could do it, I could do it. And besides, uh, we just got caught up in it. We had done so many by the time we got past El Diente that there was only a handful left. And we put them at the end of the trail, so to speak, because they were dangerous. Can you describe what it feels like to be on top of a 14er? A lot of people who will listen to these amazing stories will have never been on the top of a 14er. What what does it feel like? What are the emotions? I think first you feel elation, and then you feel a great sense of beauty. It's so beautiful, because below your feet are ranges and ranges of other mountains. And you can see how we live really in canyons. We could see the highways way down below and the cars rushing back and forth. And we realized we live down there. We can't see where we are. When you get up on a 14er, the world is yours. You can see 360 degrees and the sky seems close. And you're excited. I guess you're elated and excited. Uh, That's the feeling you have. They are the most beautiful places I've ever been, especially the Wilsons, Blanca Peak, and I guess I have to add Crestone to that, even though it was a debacle, but uh, all of them are beautiful. Yeah, wow. I've been on top of a few very easy 14ers, and I think I'm probably finished with 14ers, but what, what an accomplishment, and what a What an experience, again, to see that grandeur of the Colorado landscape. How did you get involved with Broads? Um, I joined the Great Old Broads when it was just getting organized. My friend, Frandy Bear, who became Frandy Johnson, I think was one of the organizers, and she's in our hiking group. So she talked it up quite a bit, and I started going on the trips and really enjoying myself. It's a great group, and I'm glad to see it's. United States wide now, it's nationwide. So uh, with some influence politically and a great deal of influence on the environment. And this is something we all can be proud about. All right. Yeah, boy, those original founders were, again, gutsy women who were not afraid to stand up and defend our, our wilderness. So we're all grateful for those, you included, you trailblazers who were there in the beginning. Well, thanks so much. Um, have a wonderful afternoon. Bye-bye. Don't miss the next episode of the Broad Story Project. You'll find links to other stories on our website under News, 